1: Religious freedom debates set blood boiling. Just consider notable Supreme Court cases of recent years, such as Masterpiece Cake Shop v. Colorado Civil Rights Commission or Little Sisters of the Poor v. Pennsylvania. How can we reach any agreement between those who adhere strictly to the demands of divine law and the individual conscience and those for whom human-derived law is paramount? Is there any legal and philosophical framework that can mediate when tensions erupt between the human right of religious liberty and laws in the secular realm? In her 2019 book, The Possibility of Religious Freedom, Early Natural Law, and the Abrahamic Faith, Karen Taliaferro argues that natural law can act as just such a mediating tool. Natural law thinking can help protect religious freedom and enable societies across the globe to maintain social peace and to function on the basis of fairness to all. Taliaferro shows that natural law is not merely a somewhat legal or keen legal philosophy promulgated by a subset of mostly conservative Catholic scholars and philosophers, she argues that natural law offers those in many faith traditions, and those of no faith whatever, a workable, intellectually rich way to examine fundamental questions of law and fairness without relegating religion to ever-diminishing permissible venues. One of the signal contributions of her book is that Taliaferro shows us how non-Christian thinkers, such as the Muslim scholar Ibn Rushd, also known as Evereus, the Jewish philosopher Maimonides, and Sophocles in his play Antigone and Talia original and provocative reading of that work alone is well worth the price of the book, employ natural law reasoning even if they did not use the term as such. For those who need to learn how societies around the world, and Taliaferro draws fascinating on our own experiences in the Middle East at times in the book, can balance the rights of religious people and the demands of other citizens for a strict, often ruthless secularism, this book is the place to start. Give a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Hope J. Lehman, and I am one of the hosts of the New Books Network. I am talking today with Karen Tolly farrell author of the 2019 book, The Possibility of Religious Freedom, Early Natural Law, and the Abrahamic Faith. Thank you for joining us today, Karen. Thank you so much, Hope. It's really an honor to be here. Well, I'm pleased. I'm very pleased. Before we get to your book specifically, I'd like to read what the publisher, Cambridge University Press, says about the series your book is a volume in, Law and Christianity. To wit... The Law and Christianity series publishes cutting-edge work on Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox Christian contributions to public, private, penal, and procedural law and legal theory. This series aims to promote deep Christian reflection by leading scholars on the fundamentals of law and politics, to build further ecumenical legal understanding a, across Christian denominations, and to link and amplify the diverse and somewhat iso- sometimes isolated Christian legal voices and visions at work in the academy. Works collected by the series include groundbreaking monographs, historical and thematic anthologies, and translations by leading scholars around the globe. Karen, could you tell us how you happened to publish your book in this series? Sure. Well, I
2: confess it wasn't so much my choice as I think it was a recommendation from um, one of my advisors on my dissertation back at Georgetown, Tim Shaw, who is um, a brilliant thinker and really ardent defender of religious freedom himself. He now has gone on to work at the Religious Freedom Institute. Um, actually, I believe to help co-found it. He has published extensively in the series, and I really respect both his thinking and his work, um, as well as his opinion. So when he recommended me to John witty Jr., who's the editor of the series, um, I, I certainly jumped at the chance because i admire the work in the series. Having said that, I, and I don't know if this is part of your question, it might be a little bit puzzling to see a book that is on, you know, that is only somewhat, maybe not marginally, but only in a minority of the book is on Christianity itself. Mm. Um, why that would be in the Law and Christianity series. And I'm not the editor or the publisher, so I can't answer it for Cambridge, but I suspect it would be on two accounts. One is that there is a chapter on Tertullian, who is known as the the Western father of of religious freedom. Um, And that is itself, I think, an important topic in scholarly discussions of the origins, nature, and um, the story of religious freedom, especially in the West. Um, So there's that. There is also the question, and this, again, I'm, I'm purely speculating here, but natural law tends to be a discussion among either christians themselves or people who are interested in christian thought Um, again the argument is always that natural law is not christian it is meant for all people and yet Mm. somehow it has found uh, historically it's found much more of a home within christendom i should say or at least within christian thinkers so it may have been that there was more of an audience there i mean again i'm speculating but i think those would be the two reasons for the fit
1: well, I think you do a marvelous job of connecting of, of of explaining to Christians these other faiths, and maybe the audience is a Christian audience that need. It is a Christian, well, primarily, but it needs to understand the connection between them. Mm-hmm. And I think the book is very helpful in that respect. Um, one of what it, it seemed to me that the words to your book, the words from the publisher that I just read, the words "groundmaking," "groundbreaking" monographs very much apply to your book, and you do a marvelous job of amplifying. The, the Christian legal voices in, in that you'd speak about uh, the natural law, theor- the theorists who, who, as you say, are mostly Christian, but not entirely. I know David no Right. That.
2: Right. Not entirely. Um, and, and I think there is room now for expanding. Certainly it's become in the recent in the last, I don't know, 10 years, 15 years within Islam, which is actually my, my foremost scholarly interest is in um, Islamic political thought um, as well as just religion and politics more generally. But, Natural law, natural law in Judaism is still something of an, a niche, I think. Um, natural law in Islam is something—it's still a niche, but it's it's burgeoning a bit. So, um,
1: I th- yeah, I was going to ask you later in the interview that that you make a you make a good argument for hoping to engage more m- Muslim scholars in natural law and 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 make the case of one of the thinkers that we'll discuss later, Ibn Rushd. That that you see a lot of natural law thinking, even though he wasn't isn't claimed to be by the natural law theorist at this point, right? And right. but he, but his but it his very, it fits in very well with with that kind of without the school of thought, right? So. Very much, yeah. And I think have, that that's have you, Oh, I'm have sorry. You gotten much, oh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, have you gotten much much feedback from scholars? Because you you say, I mean, do they do they do they push back against that or do they welcome that? The Muslim scholars um, on the Muslim scholars themselves. Let me think. I I published an article
2: version of that chapter prior to publishing the book, Um, and I've gotten a a decent amount of positive feedback on that. Um, I'm sure there's plenty of pushback, but people haven't been as vocal about it. So I I think, again, it's still a small field, those of us who are interested in pursuing the idea of natural law within the Islamic tradition. Um, Anvar Iman is the leading scholar there, and he commented, I think, on my on my article at some point. Oh dear, no, actually, I assumed that he was, I assumed that he was one of the blind reviewers and he and I have, I think a somewhat different view of what it would take to be natural law within the Islamic context. He wrote the book on Islamic natural law and it's much more a jurisprudential account, which is utterly important in Islam because Islam like Judaism is primarily legal and then theological as opposed to Christianity, which is almost entirely theological in a sense. Um nevertheless, I'm pursuing natural law as a philosophical strain within Islam. So I'm kind of going perhaps a little bit more on the edges, but it is also the area where I think natural law um, can form a bridge between and among religions, precisely because of course, Christians and Jews do not follow Islamic law, um, nor you know, anyone who is not a Muslim doesn't follow Islamic law. So why should they pay attention to this natural law, which is meant to be something that all humans can access? And so my answer to that is: well, we can look in the philosophy, which is just appealing to human reason, which is just working on arguments from the nature of things themselves, rather than from the revealed Sharia or Islamic law.
1: Hmm. Well, I'd like to to emphasize one of the one of the reasons I think that they might find the book appealing is is when you character. I'd like to character to read how you characterize the book so that they, any, any audience can see whether whether they're people of faith or no, no faith at all. You say, this book is a call to reconsider the nature of religious freedom. It is intended as an honest examination of both the unique difficulty of religious liberty as well as the resources for protecting it in the 21st century. It makes two claims. First, that religious freedom presents a philosophical and legal problem because it requires the arbitration of two sets of law, and obligation, human and divine. Secondly, it claims claims that expanding our conception of law to incorporate not only human and divine law, but also natural law provides the best available basis for religious freedom with implications for justice and human rights more generally. And and continuing with what you wrote in the preface, you write at the end of the preface, that was from the beginning. This book's project then is both timeless and timely. It recognizes the perennial struggle of human beings to confront divine obligations while negotiating human society but it also sees in our present moment an urgent need to restore metaphysical and teleological moorings to our political, social and moral debates. It is a book on religious freedom, but is also a book on a way forward out of the ag- agonistic, often rancorous and combative battles of wills that 21st century politics has become. That is the way of natural law. And certainly with the announcement of of. Uh, Amy Comey Barrett to the, to the Supreme Court. We're going to see a lot of rancorous battles of will over the next several weeks, and so I think that I've, as I read your book, I just thought this is a very reasonable way of people of goodwill to uh, approach things. You know, and and it, and, it, and I, as 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 for those people who do not have any religious faith, it should appeal to them more than than almost any philosophy in a way, because it's very basic and understandable. I would crazy? hope so. That's exactly what you say is my hope and my own
2: understanding of it. Um, I think the concern is that once we get into a battle of wills, there is no longer you know, a, a sort of battle of what I want or what is in my interest versus what is in your interest without putting the common good at the forefront of common good as the thing that we will pursue, even if it requires some sacrifice on our part. Once we have turned politics into that, it is difficult then to say, "Well, let's try to find a compromise," because we've sort of doubled down on our own sides. Having said that, it we all know where that ends. Um, mm. we've been through a civil war before in our own country, and we can look around the world for countless examples of what my will versus your will looks like, and it's ugly, and it usually doesn't end up with any winner so my my hope is that for those who do want to see a a cessation of metaphorical violence or real violence in some cases that we can recognize that natural law is probably not only the best option that we have for a common ground because it recognizes, and, and we can get into this, but because it recognizes, you know, ends, teloy, inherent in the nature of things, of people, of institutions, um, rather than my own idea and your own idea, it says, well, okay, what do we have to work with here? What is the nature of society, of the family, of the person, what have you? Um, once we're looking at that as our common ground, um, then, you know, we, we are... Bound by certain things, we can't just insist on having our own way because our own way doesn't always comport with the reality of things, with the nature of things, with i.e. the natural law. Um, so I, I hope that it is a reasonable path forward, though it's not always easy. Rarely is easy.
1: Well, s- well, speaking of the basics of natural law, that um, could you tell us about the new natural law theorists? For example, you were talking about what we can all agree on and when. One of the, some of the theorists talk about basic goods and benefit and harm, and right. that might be a, a good way to explain to people some of the building blocks of the whole philosophy. and, and Could you mention some of the lead, the leading theorists in it?
0: Right, right.
2: So that is actually, I should note that that's not the
1: sort of school of natural thought that I
2: was that I primarily studied, mm. um, though I I have such respect for its its leading theorists that I sometimes wonder if I should, if that should be my 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 primary intellectual allegiance. But um, of course, John Finnis is the the father of it.
1: Mm. Um, I just want to spell that for our listeners. F-I-N-N-I-S, Finnis. Right.
2: Originally, I think, um, professor in law at, uh, he's a philosopher, um, but professor of law as well at Oxford. um, And now still at Notre Dame Law, although possibly, I, I mean, emeritus. Yeah, he just um, retired. He I just read retired. Twitter. Okay, yeah. right. Oh well, i will see. I should be on Twitter now.
1: Yeah, well, um, that. that's. It's, I actually see Twitter twi- tweets about your book, so maybe you should.
2: Oh dear. Okay. Well, yes. I suppose I should get me an account. <laughs> <laughs> Not necessarily um, because that I would with a scholarship. So. <laughs> yes, it is a great way to despair of the future. Um, so right, it's, a, it's a time sink as well. Yes. So. Yeah, I know. And with <laughs> with a new baby around, there is very little time for. That. um So John Finnis is probably the father of the new natural law theory. Jermaine um, Griset, Robert P. George at Princeton is perhaps the most well-known to a lot of your listeners, probably the most well-known in America. Um, Ryan Anderson, Sharif Gergis, his students are kind mm. of carrying it on to the next generation. And um, oh dear, I am absolutely blanking on his name, South Carolina, who is- oh. a- Christopher Tollefson? Thank you. Christopher Tollefson, who is a wonderful man and really brilliant thinker. Um, I a very clear writer as well. I'd yeah, I just know that his because I've
1: read his, his, he co-authored the book Embryo with Robert P. George, and yes. that's really, yeah. Yeah,
2: he is, I, I think, just a, 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 an intellectual giant, but also just a terrific human being, of course, and I can't remember his name. Um, but, <laughs> so those are I mean, the, the best figures offhand that I can think of for the new natural law theory. Um, it is a different approach. The way that I look at it is that it is um, probably a deontological approach, right? We first name what these basic goods are and then we derive as, as sort of stipulate that these are how reality is, um, and then derive our you know deduce from there, right and and that's it's not unrelated to my own approach, but it's certainly different. And the reason that I haven't fully jumped on board is that, I'm not sure that I can defend, and, and not that it isn't defensible, but that I can defend two parts. One, how we know that those are definitely the basic goods of, you know, of human life, of the world. Mm. Um, and the, the minds that do defend it are greater than my own. So again, I don't mean to say they are not defensible, but that I'm not sure that
1: I can do that work. Um, well, n- naughty, naughty. I often, I've often read that women tend to downplay their own yes, ability. Yes, I know, and I am. I'm, I'm... I read your book, and I can <laughs> say I'm sure you could get in there with those oh, guys. Oh, you were and...
2: too kind. Well, thank <laughs> you.
1: But the the second one is that I'm
2: not quite sure, and this is a problem that my own theory might run into as well. But I'm not quite sure where we get the ought from in New Natural Law. This is it seems quite prudential if you want to have a happy life if you want to flourish, you should pursue these basic goods and doing so will look like this. And I think in as much as they theorize those basic goods and what they would look like in society, again, these are, I mean, it's brilliant theory. And it's also, it has the advantage of being very practical. Um, you can translate new natural law theory into policy in a way that I, I'm not sure the more abstract, say Thomist, just straight Thomist um, natural law theory is is quite Clear on. Um, so, why should you? Why should you pursue that? If, um, if say you say, well, I don't really want to flourish. I want to live a, a you know, self-destructive but hedonistic life. Um, I think there's good reason in there to say, well, you know, you you won't flourish. You won't actually be happy. But I haven't fully been able to get over that question in my own thought. I think eventually I probably will. But so far, I've still sort of been been wary of jumping fully on board. My own approach then is, is and I make this, I, I think quite explicit in the book, is um, adapted from Monsignor Robert Sokolowski. So it's another, you know, another Catholic thinker, surprise, surprise. But um, he borrows from Francis Slade, who's a somewhat, I think, obscure out of philosophical circles, uh, philosopher, I used to teach at St. Francis College, Um, who said it's the natural law. It's not a set of rules. We can't really just come up with an abstract set of rules that we can live by and call that the natural law. Rather, it's almost like a process, a way that we approach moral and ethical thinking. It is the ontological prioritization of ends over purposes. Ends being those things that inhere in thing, the, the that for which something exists. So you know you can say well what does family exist for is it primarily for self fulfillment is it primarily for you know procreation is it for some combination of this but we can we can ask that question it's a meaningful question so the end of something is the, that for which it exists and natural law insists that we prioritize ends over our own purposes our purposes being that which we sort of set out to do and we can set out to do and we strategize and we come up with tactics for any number of things. And they can be good, or they can be bad, or they can be neutral. But to follow the natural law means to say, whatever my own purposes are, I must um, sublimate them to make them secondary to the ends of a thing. So I might decide that I want my family to bring me fame and fortune, and I'm going to conscript everyone in it to supporting whatever my career or some sort of flashy celebrity project. But that would be to subvert the ends of family. And and that is a natural law no-no. So I think it's it's a bit simpler than new natural law theory. Um, That doesn't mean it's in any sort of conflict with it. I really don't think it is. Um, But it gives a very thin account of natural law, which is another reason that I work with it, because it works so well across traditions. Though again, you know, here I am quoting a Catholic philosopher. I think that that idea, um, which is not unlike Leo Strauss's version of natural right, um, that that can work within different philosophical, religious, and you know, sort of a religious traditions.
1: Yeah, I think you do a wonderful job in the book of periodically you. You 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 address the non-religious reader and say, well, you may think that this is completely you, you, primarily Catholic or, or secondarily mm-hmm. Christian, but you also say, but this is just the way a guide to how to live an ethical life, or a product, or or how to maintain social peace as well, or or protect yeah protect p- conscience of of of, of uh, many levels. Yeah, and I think here we can take
2: a, a lesson from. The now late Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when she was pursuing what I think what many see as women's rights. She didn't pursue women's rights. She pursued the of the sexes, right? So one of the first cases was on, a, it wasn't actually her case, as I understand it, and I'm no jurisprudential expert, but I might get the details wrong. But as I understand it, it was actually the case that came prior to her in her arguing before the Supreme Court, um, in which the law was being challenged in South Dakota or North Dakota that allowed women to purchase beer and wine or perhaps alcohol uh, at a younger age than men. And her argument was, if you have a law that's going to discriminate on the basis of sex, it will be used against women. So I think that the analog here is that even for those who look at the religious freedom cases and say, this is a move towards theocracy, I would submit the more that we can do to protect conscience and even the rights of a religious community, the more that we can do to, produ- to protect those rights and freedoms, the the freer and more flourishing our entire society will be because it will rebound to the the other down to the other groups
1: even the non-religious you know
2: um, mm.
1: well ap- apropos of since we've discussed natural law, I'd, I'd like to ask you about the title of your book because you it's, it's called you use the phrase the possibility of religious freedom and it, it, you discuss in the book how some theorists, I think you begin, I believe you begin the book by talking about people who believe it's impossible, it is impossible to right. reconcile. Yeah. And and I wonder if you, you could discuss the difference between religious freedom versus religious liberty.
2: Oh dear. I actually um, use them interchangeably.
1: Okay. Well, that's I fine. know that that's some helpful. don't. Yeah,
2: yeah, I do. And that I probably should have made that clear. But the title of the book is, is a, a bit cheeky. It's a response to Winifred Sullivan's the impossibility of religious freedom, which is, I think, a very important book. I read it in my very first class um, in graduate school and made me quite angry because, <laughs> precisely because I agreed with so much of it and totally disagreed with the conclusion. And apparently I never got over it, so I had to write the book in response. But the argument um, so Winnie Sullivan is a, a lawyer, but also an academic. She teaches law, as, and I think she teaches at the, or she did. At the divinity school at the university of chicago so she has both legal and religious expertise and she was called to serve as an expert witness in a case a religious freedom case in florida in which um, plaintiffs were attempting to um they, they wanted to have actually i'm trying to remember if they're plaintiffs or the defendants originally in any case there were the um, loved ones of deceased family members and friends um, family members, I think, primarily, who had created monuments and displays in a cemetery that went technically against the cemetery's regulations, but they were claiming this is a part of our religion and we need to be able to have these monuments. So Sullivan was an expert witness in the case, and she was very frustrated by the way that the judge conducted matters because he was looking, f- he was looking to decide on his own whether their claims to religious exemption were legitimate, i.e., and she said that he was taking um, a Protestant approach to all mm-hmm. religion, right? So if someone would say, well, it's, you know, it's Jewish custom that we have this kind of memorial and the cemetery won't let us. And he would say, show me the place, you know, in the Torah that will say that you need to have this. And the rabbi was, was called as an expert would say, well, it's not really, you know, it's not really a question of, a clear text that we can say requires this, but rather it's a part of our tradition. And what frustrated Sullivan about all of this was that she saw so much power in the hands of this one judge, so much power to decide what counted as legal religion, illegal religion or illicit religion.
1: Yeah, it was kind of capricious and arbitrary. It was... Right,
2: right. Because, it was, you know, what if this judge had happened to be atheist and had a very different worldview? He probably would have decided very differently what counted as authentic or as legal religion. So, and I agree with that. I think it's a problem if we end up... If we end up putting all of that power into the hands of a single judge. Um, having said that... You know, in an arbitrary way, right? That he gets to decide based on his own personal version of what religion is and isn't. Having said that, her conclusion was that religious freedom is therefore impossible and probably we should... She didn't really get into what she did think should have happened in this exact case. Um, But she said, you know, perhaps we should just look to protections of speech and assembly and kind of shoehorn religious concerns into those. And I worry greatly about that approach um, precisely because for one thing, it doesn't really solve anything. You know, now we have to decide what counts as legal speech It's still going to be quite messy. Um, but I think we can't reduce religion to acts only to speech only or to, you know, speech in assembly only. Um, certainly many religious people, many religious people probably could reduce it to that and that would be okay for them. But many religious people, many religious traditions, certainly many religious communities see this as having an entirely different alignment than human law, right? So it's that's why I began with Antigone, who interestingly is, of course, dealing with a burial as well. Um, if, if religion is what many religious people think it is and what historically religion has usually been understood to mean, something that answers to an entirely different and higher authority. And sometimes, especially in the case of Judaism, cases of Judaism and Islam law, then we can't just make it the same thing as human speech and assembly. That reduces it entirely to the imminent frame. And What religious people are claiming is that it is transcendent. This is something that is higher than human authority. So if you want to reduce it to the entirely imminent frame, you're already pronouncing on what religion is. It doesn't get around the problem that Sullivan is complaining about. And that's why I came to the conclusion that there has to be something that can speak to both sides, to both human law and to divine law. And the obvious
1: candidate there to me seemed to be natural law. Well, it was interesting when you, when you, and the way you apl- you have a whole chapter on Antigone, and it was really fascinating because many of us of, of a certain generation, they probably maybe still do in certain high schools, read were taught Antigone, and and we were you make the point that she's kind of, she's presented as this 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 free spirited. Uh, Person who just defies the the law, but she but she doesn't defy the law. She's adhering to the divine law. She doesn't really defy law. Right. She just adheres to a different law. Right. And and it, rather than, than and then Creon is is just and they basically and you see it's kind of touching because you say now if both of them just adhered to natural law and were more reasonable. They were there wouldn't have been this tragedy of corpses pile upon corpses.
2: <laughs> and, right. And- perhaps. Perhaps. Right. And I don't want to overstate the case that well, if we could all just agree on natural law, life would be. <laughs> peaceful and full of unicorns and rainbows. <laughs> Nevertheless, I, I think that it is sort of the the only way out of that struggle because Creon, and I think that Creon in, in the sort of classic, you know, high school telling of the case, it's Creon is this evil tyrant and Antigone is a heroine of conscience. And this should inspire us for any, I mean, it's been used as a play and it's been adapted into film and been used as so many different versions of this the sort of, struggle for political justice right Used for anti-apartheid causes and yeah it's been it's been
1: co-opted by the left
2: usually right 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 the government and yeah i think most recently even there was a palestinian girl who was compared to antigone in 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 her protest and i think that that's it's it's an easy reading of it but i think that it ignores creon and ignores the imminent concerns right it ignores the concerns of the state um to allow Antigone, who is, you know, effectively a member of the former ruling family, mm. who's been displaced. Now to allow her to honor the the her brother who rebelled, or at least this is the the way that it is seen, is that he rebelled against the state.
1: Yeah, he was he a is traitor. I mean, right. be, He's a traitor. That, he yeah. took
2: up arms against the state. The law has been issued by this new authority, right? So he has to establish his own credibility, if he is to maintain order in the state. And I'm using state, I mean, a bit anachronistically, but if we think about this in in sort of perennial terms, we have the, the political order and the divine order, and the political order has real um, legitimacy. It has legitimacy as a real concern. So Creon is not wrong to want to say, listen, we need to establish order at law and order again, and I can't allow the member of the past ruling family to um, to to disobey my order, that's going to confuse everyone, right? She needs to be stopped and the traitor needs to be punished. Um, he's thinking about the, and, and again, I use immanent and transcendent, or we could probably say human and divine in, in similar ways. He's thinking about purely human concerns, but they're legitimate concerns. And I think, again, when, when we look at contemporary cases, it's usually... This is why I say that you know those who adhere to no faith should be concerned about this because we all share those human those human needs and concerns we do need political order. So Creon isn't entirely wrong but he's missing a a huge part of the picture.
1: He thinks well, I, think, I think your book in terms of of religious religious freedom is particularly timely now because of COVID-19 and there's so many cases of the, the law is, is again, it's a little capricious and arbitrary. And some of the governors say, Well, we an, an abortion clinic can be open, and, or a, a liquor store can be open, but you can't have a religious service and you can't go to your father's funeral. Whereas you can go to the right. funeral of, of my political ally, that's right. all right, right? Yeah, <laughs> uh,
2: yeah. yeah, that the we, we've unearthed that tension quite anew. <laughs> we found another yeah. way, um, to say, Well, of course, we have these. These earthly concerns and we have to put them, you know, to some, those are the only ones that matter. There is, for those who are, there are some who either refuse to obey or just could not get behind any kind of order to um, temporarily cancel religious services. And then there were some who absolutely couldn't understand how anyone would ever resist that order. Right. And I think that there's, again, there's, when we make all, Law and all concerns, either human or principally divine,
1: uh, we won't be able to talk to each other so- well it's also too. It seems that Creon is 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 if he were in the modern day, he wouldn't so much be a governor or a, a state official he, he would be a public health expert <laughs> right. like he can, yeah. we're told, listen to the scientists or say, well what's scientific about I can't go to my father's service, but you can go to a congressman's funeral right how, how scientific is that and then, and i mean i could I could see Antigone saying. So can you, I, I, I don't recognize that. I don't recognize the expert voice in that. So. Or
2: even I recognize that that may be the science, but I don't care because there's right. something that's much more important to me. She is willing to die for this. She kind of waffles at the end. I think she in some ways expected to be saved from the fate that she signed up for. Um, like she expected the gods to be more on her side than, than they seem to be in her
1: final speech. But, um, yeah, and the people you make the interesting point that Creon is is trying to trying to read the public that the public seems to be on her side, right? But he 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 says this isn't wise to be on her side, right? Right. I mean, you so. can,
2: and and I don't want to paint myself as a sympathizer of tyrants,
1: because <laughs> I think he
2: is ultimately um, he he manifests some tyrannical sides tendencies, maybe even primarily. But you can, if you put yourself in Creon's place. You can understand someone whose first concern is restore law and order, right? We can't have another war here. We can't have another question of who's in charge. So he has that concern legitimately. His problem is that he sees nothing else. And I think you're right to point out, public health officials certainly are in the right to be concerned about the science and about public health. Um, That may not be, for many people, the only concern. Um, Of course, I don't want to carry the analogy too, too far because there are issues that may not be your concern, but you may spread it to others, et cetera. But um, I mean only to say, I think there is great puzzlement today over the issue of COVID because some see health concerns as not only paramount, but kind of the only one in a pandemic and others see it as part of the picture and still others see it as almost none of the picture because they are so concerned with the divine law as it were.
1: Yeah, the whole the whole terminology that will be fodder for years to come for academics about essential workers. So right. a uh, a nurse is an essential worker, but a priest is not. Right, right.
2: And, and, you and know, in some cases, the liquor store is the essential worker, but yeah.
1: Hmm. Well, in terms when you argue, you, you use the term a robust theory of law, and I'm just wondering in terms of how would this look in a law school curricula? Would you how how would what what how would a a, a young a, a first year law student how would this be incorporated into legal education at this point? At it, it, say, it's at it's say, a secular law school. Oh boy! Um, well, having never been to law school, I probably should refrain from giving concrete <laughs>
2: suggestions. But it certainly would fit into the category of philosophy of law. You know, I'm not offering clear guidance on how to formulate law, and certainly not how to litigate. Um, that's actually an important point. I think that where I'm attempting to intervene is at really at the level of the philosophy of law, what is law and therefore what ought we to do with law. But that would, if we move it into the practical realm, which would be the goal, I suppose in a, in a law school, it would probably first be a question of legislation rather than arbitration and litigation. Um, we would like the laws that we as a polity follow to be written in such a way that they are prioritizing ends rather than purposes and that, so that we don't have to get to the point that Winifred Sullivan rightly decries in saying, "You're leaving all the power in the hands of the judge." You know, and this is, I think, again, right at the at the surface right now. How much power do we want the Supreme Court to have? Um, and that answer often shifts depending on um, which party is is nominating. Um,
1: so, you, even, you even make the point.
2: Of, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, no, I just wanted to stress, right, that where we would first, where we would, I think, primarily want to be considering the uh, the, the natural law is really first in crafting our policy in the first yeah. place.
1: Because I, w- I was just looking at a passage from your book and it said, what I'm proposing then would mean that human legislators would craft human law, not as mere positive law, but only based only on consensus or human command, but also taking into account. Natural law, right? And then, and then you you go on to say traditions of natural law permit a robust, uh, a robust religious freedom in a pluralized society better than secular approaches because they combine the secular advantage of access through human reason, as distinguished from law that must be revealed by God. Yet they resist the kind of annihilating secularism that Habermas warns against. And could you talk about the the concept of annihilating secularism? I think that's an right. Issue that, yeah. And that, yeah, that was that was Habermas's term. Um, and it's now very graphic and effective.
2: <laughs> it is right. I know, I know. And I think he's. Um, I, I'd have to go back and reread that article that that term was from. So I don't want to put too many words in Habermas's mouth. Um, what I recall it to be was what I would say: conceiving of law as human only, as positive law only. Um, that would be the first step, and then insisting that that all religious matters stay out of the public sphere. And I think that that even just doing that, even that question of whether religion belongs in the public sphere is to some um, already outrageous. Why would religion belong in the public sphere? Um, to some, there is this wall of separation, which is Jefferson's term. Of course, it's not actually law, it's in a letter. A wall of separation between religion and state, between church and state. Um, And and I think that that would end in an annihilating secularism because what is it to have religious freedom if that religion can only have relevance and um, show itself either within, say, the home or the religious building, right? Um, I think that that would be an annihilating secularism for At least, and again, not for all religious people, but for so many religious people and certainly found within the traditions themselves, religion is meant to affect the public sphere.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system.
1: Yeah, There's actually, makes, uh, you don't discuss John Rawls very much in the book, which is interesting t- because he's, he's, he's the very personification of annihilating secularism in some ways, isn't he, that he would basically said you can have all your religion you want at home, but not in the public sphere, uh, right. basically at all. <laughs> right, and <laughs> I'm. In, I, this is
2: a, a kind of a rabbit hole. But I just started reading before our interview. I just started reading an article in the Atlantic, uh, the most recent edition. Uh, Why is the West so powerful and so peculiar? It's an article by Judith, Judith Shulevitz um, discussing. I believe it's discussing a book actually, but um, how the Catholic Church intervened in could marry whom and we're going back to sixth century sixth seventh century Mm. um and what the the effect of it it was concerning um relatives marrying each other and it broke up tribes right so what that meant was that tribalism had to be broken up as a means of organizing society so this was the church directly interfering in public life um and what it did was it laid the groundwork for what we might call liberalism, right? So that we aren't-
1: I'm right. sorry, what was that
2: word? For liberalism.
1: Liberalism. Right, <laughs> so that
2: we don't have a society that is ruled by tribal interests, by you know chiefs warring with other chiefs, whether with weapons or with you know interests and, and groups and money and words, um, but that we have a society in which people can mingle with each other and use arguments against each other, not considering who they are affiliated with, what their name is, Their tribe is. I mean, that's the aspiration of liberalism in any case. So, to say that religion ought to be a private matter, I think just misunderstands history and it misunderstands the nature of religion for so many different religious people in various religions. Um, And it also limits the. It's certainly, I know that it's an attempt to keep the harmful aspects of religious battles and such out of or the imposition of religious beliefs um, out of the public sphere, but it also really restricts the very positive contributions that religion has historically made. Um, Again, that's a two-edged sword, but I think more fundamental to my argument is that you can't do that and still call it religion in, in, again, so many people's lived experiences and in so many traditions and texts of, of religion.
1: Yeah, I think that's kind of interesting. We're seeing that with Amy Coney Barrett that her her so many of the reactions are really shockingly anti-religious and, and basically saying, "Well, the fact that you're a devout Catholic is is is, is, is an automatic disqualification," right. that, which is really and, I'm, and it's fascinating because it's coming from um, feminists who base who ideal. I mean, she's kind of the ideal mm. role model of success by feminist standards, and yet the fact that she's that she has and that she's being put on this on the spot as as well this is this is dangerous and you make you make the you use a wonderful phrase in your book of that your when you discuss natural law that you say that secularists or some readers can smell religion an ulterior motive they can detect it under mm. the natural and i'd like to on that on that point i'd like to read again from your book we talk about why you talk about why natural law is a a, a value to 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 freedom as you were discussing issue so you write Traditions of natural law evoke reason and experience rather than revelation as their primary tools. They thereby remain accessible to all citizens, regardless of creed, without denuding religion of its metaphysical, even mystical aspects. Mm -hmm. They leave room for the discursive aspect of law, and while accessible to natural reason, also leave space for metaphysical speculation and belief. In other words, they can respond to the need for public reason without reducing it to a strictly secular, secularist rationalism that requires religious citizens to translate their concepts into non-religious ones. Right. So, yeah, that, that game of, okay, your religious views can be, you just have to express, or I think you used the word translate, they have to be translated. Right, and that's
2: Habermas's um, mm. Habermas' term, mm. sort of his overall theory is that you can have religious beliefs, but they need to be translatable into Um, you know, a publicly accessible language, which I think is an an immediately sympathetic view, right? Like we don't want to be using these inaccessible terms and and such, but at the same time, the problem with it that scholars have pointed out is that it always puts the burden on the religious person to say, okay, here's what I mean by that in your terms. Um, I think there's, it's always a give and take, right? That if, Amy Coney Barrett would come to her hearing and say, you just have to accept my religious reasons and I'm not going to explain myself. You know, that's not going to promote <laughs> a, mm. um, mutual understanding either. But at the same time, I, I think it would be unfair to say we demand that you either jettison your religious beliefs if you want to be on the court or translate them into terms that we find acceptable in secular terms. Well, it's, again, that's a misunderstanding of, of what religion is for so many people.
1: Well, what's strange too is that she's offering she made a point that sometimes a Catholic judge would it would be incumbent on the judge to recuse herself from a death penalty right. case and then they were using that against her so you see you're and she was saying no I, I I'm saying that when my religious beliefs would would happen to conflict I would withdraw or recuse myself right and it just seemed like well what are you demanding that she that she that she remain uh, uh, make a judgment and then you would criticize her for or, or what? Well, I just, and I think
2: the concern is, I mean, it goes back to Kennedy, right? You have allegiance to the Pope. You certainly can't be an, an American president. Um, and she's saying, and that was, I, I think she was still in law school when she co-authored that. Um, and I think she's backpedaled a bit from it, but regardless, even if she'd said, no, this is absolutely my position today. Um, the question is whether, yes, she has Catholic beliefs and you could even say allegiances. Um, but, does no one else on the bench have intellectual or personal or religious allegiances as well? You know, there, Mm. there isn't a neutral place. Um, Metaphysics is always there in the background and to assert a secular realm is already an assertion itself. It's to say we either don't believe that anything exists beyond this imminent frame that we live in, or, we allow that maybe it exists, but it doesn't matter. I mean, those are those are positive statements. Those aren't neutral. So mm-hmm. that she would say, I have such a strong allegiance to my beliefs that I would recuse myself is, I think, um, I admire her honesty, or you know, again, I think she has backpedaled from that. But I admire that she would do that in the first place. But I think that it would be good if we could all be honest about what our commitments are in the decisions that we make. Um, We all have some kind of metaphysics, whether it is Catholic or atheist or agnostic or Muslim or Jewish or something else entirely. We all see the world in some way and not in other ways. Mm. So yeah, I think it's a bit unfair. (laughs)
1: Yeah, yes, it will be fascinating to see what hap- how this right. comes up again. So, um, one one of the things that, that apropos of balancing things is uh, we, uh, in your book, I found it interesting that you use the word ambitious and modest in two, in two yes. different ways. And we talked about this in an in e- in email. I, I just was I was I was as a reader, I just wanted to understand better because you you write that. You, you talk about the ambitious project of integrating natural law theory into real world legal matters. Mm-hmm. And then what you call what you call your own versus your own modest project, mm-hmm. which is just trying to get natural into the, you know, this, this, I'm afraid this kind of psycho news or word of the, the month, the, the conversation. But, it, and, and I just wonder about, could you explain the difference between your, the project of the book versus the grander project right right so
2: the and i'm sorry because you broke up just a little bit so correct me if i've misunderstood you but i think i got the question um the modest part is the theoretical part of it i think that it does not require very much to accept that you know and this is perhaps more aimed at say scholars and other political theorists or religious study scholars um, though probably perhaps especially political theorists, that it doesn't take much to admit that if we conceive of law as only human, we can see how that ends in the sort of Habesian war of all against all, right? If there is truly nothing higher than either, I mean, consensus, consensus is nice, but consensus only requires, you know, 51%. And we've seen how that can work in history. It can greatly harm a minority. Um, and you can even have a consensus that it's not harm. You can even you can come up with a consensus on all kinds of evil things. So we can have consensus, or we can have just sheer force. Um, so I don't think it takes very much to admit that human law and human justice alone leaves us greatly wanting. Um, I think there's no need to persuade scholars that to see law as divine only would also leave us wanting in the in the political sphere, the public sphere. Um, so in that sense, it's a modest claim to say, why not look at nature? We all accept that there is nature. Now we disagree on the extent to which that matters. We disagree on even what we're seeing in nature. Um, but if I can be permitted, just a little sidebar here, I think the, the case of, say, climate change makes this quite clear. We need to pay attention to the, the nature of nature, right? Um, we, we can't just impose our wills. We can't just make the world into whatever we want it to be. Um, so that much seems to be modest. It is nevertheless, I think, when we look around at the reality of our political life in here, you know, I have in mind especially America, but I think this is true in a, in a lot of different polities it would be ambitious to suggest that we would bind ourselves by the the confines that nature imposes on us again that we can't just make our society whatever we want it to be that we are actually bound by some things that are just inherent in reality Um, it's not the way that we like to think of ourselves we like to think that uh, you know for better and for worse we might like to think well we are a nation founded on an idea, and we can make this happen if we just will it enough. Um, or that—that's you know the the aspirational side is we can just will this, and if we can get enough people on board, we can make it happen. Well, maybe we need to think about what human nature is, and we need to work with it. I would submit that the founders and the framers did do that. Um, but it would be dangerous if we say we can make our polity whatever we want it to be. Um, and again, for worse, I think we can say we can we can circumvent the natural ends of human beings just in our own interest or in our own party's interest or in our own whatever group's interest. So, well, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. You go ahead. Oh, no. I just mean to, to sum that up. It's it's quite ambitious because I think our politics has in, in large part been reduced to just interest at this point. And people are not used to being asked, what limits does nature impose on us?
1: Hmm. Yeah, certainly in the age of wildfires and so forth. And <laughs> right,
2: it's becoming clear we're going to have to deal with it, and yet we often turn to, well, if we just come up with the right technology, we still don't have to be bound by limits, you know, um, or if the other side would just get out of the way, we don't have to be bound by limits.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I was going to say, and uh, moving on to your, to some of the, the 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 thinkers that you that you uh, discuss in the book that address these topics apropos of, of natural law, you write on the chapter in Maimonides, you write maimonidean law fulfills the between human and divine role that i propose for natural law throughout this book and does maimonides address some of what you were just speaking about about uh, the trying to mediating as a mediating factor because he's very he's very law oriented and yet you're yeah. saying that law is not always Law, uh, the, the, the secular law or the human law is not always the answer either. Right, right, and of course for
2: him, law is, is Jewish law in um, mm. his project. And there's a lot of there are a lot of different ways of interpreting Maimonides, um, partly because so many of his interpreters have uh, adhered to well the Straussing school, which says there's an esoteric reading here, but um, at least ostensibly, when you read the, the letter at the beginning of it. His project is to answer this you know, real or not student of his who is attempting to retain both philosophy and what he's been taught by the Jewish law um, because they seem to arrive at conflicting conclusions. So he doesn't, in answer to your question or as an attempt to answer your question, Maimondi certainly doesn't come out with a clear theory of natural law. He's not Aquinas. Um, What he does do is show for this this pupil, uh, Rabbi Joseph, that you can, at once, if you do philosophy very well, philosophy will not attempt to answer the questions of revelation, of prophecy. Therefore, you can have true prophecy, but of course, prophecy itself should be done well. It should use reason. Um, Understanding the revelation of God should also employ reason and, and discourse. So there's a meeting of the two that, again, I submit is akin to what the natural law does. It, it uses reason, it examines the nature of things, but it doesn't go beyond that. And that's what I think Maimonides' critique of philosophy on the one hand is well, those philosophers who are trying to just take over and explain everything above the heavens, they're going too far. Real philosophy will not contradict revelation. Um, and, and therefore, we need not fear a conflict of reason and revelation to put it to put it in sort of not not his exact terms, but that's the the gist of it.
1: Well, it's interesting too because he he was he's regarded as a, as a great figure in philosophy and then you you address or you profile ter, is it Tertilian ter, Tertullian Tertullian. Yeah. He he, he he is rather trying because you basically say that he's kind of a stubborn person because he 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 basically dis, dis, t, detests or does or distrusts, I should say, philosophers. He certainly he, does. Yeah, as a rhetorical move. Um,
2: and yet, and and perhaps truly, you know, he might he might have really meant what he said. And yet he draws on all of these um, ancient and probably well, yeah, ancient thinkers. Um, and, and cites them and draws on the philosophical traditions that he finds himself in the midst of. So there's a bit of a contradiction there, but and, and I try to argue this in the chapter. He's he
1: is okay with paradox. So in a sense, yeah, you write very fascinatingly about his love of paradox, oh. and, and there's a wonderful passage where you talk about. I'm not. I think it's Tertullian that him or you're just yourself writing about the, the contradictions between Christ's life that he was. He was loved by his father, and yet he was sacrificed by his father. He's weak, and yet he's strong, and right. he's gentle, and yet he's ferocious. And yeah, he's a he's a he's a man, but he's not. He's also a god, and so forth. And
2: right, right. That this is that the heart of Christianity has a paradox at it. So Tertullian, I uses,
1: I'm sorry. Oh, I, I wanted to ask you about that the the idea of paradox, and also his use of the word inept, which right. was kind of fascinating the, because I never heard it used in that way before. Yeah, and that's a very literal translation. It's often
2: translated as absurd. Um, So I I stuck with the very literal, but absurd probably captures the meaning of it better, that, you know, I believe what is absurd. Um, And and I think that that's taken, along with other of his writings, to to mean that he just rejected reason and philosophy outright. And my suggestion is that he actually embraces... um, a larger version of reason, if that can be said, a version of reason that accepts paradox as part of reality. Um, partly, yes, because of his commitment to Christianity, but also because I think when we, and now, you know, moving beyond Tertullian, but I think when we look around, we see paradox in life so often. Um, we, we can't explain everything in perfectly rational terms. And so in a sense, his his willingness to, accept that philosophy can't explain everything and to accept the reality of paradox makes him a very helpful thinker, especially for the modern age. Um, and and again, in that chapter, I, I quoted him as having some sort of proto-modern expressions. There were some expressions that sounded like it came out of Rousseau and another that talked about religious freedom where he sounded like Jefferson's quote of, you know, my neighbor's religion, neither what picks my pocket or you know, it's essentially whatever my neighbor wants to believe is none of my business. It's not going to harm me, which I already take some issue with. But at the same time, Tertullian says these things. So in a sense, I think Tertullian is a very helpful thinker for modern times, precisely because we find ourselves with, you know, the more that we learn about science, um, physics, uh, the, the more that we find ourselves in paradox already. So a thinker that can be at once religious, philosophical, and yet scorn philosophy at the same time is, is fascinating for our time.
1: Well, I think one thing that's, you make the fascinating point about him, about Tertullian, that he, he was writing, defending a minority group within the Roman empire, Christians, which were a small besieged minority. He was, he was addressing a pagan world and he would find it, probably that what makes him modern now because there's so much in, in secularism that Christians feel themselves besieged and, at this point again which is right. a fascinating turn of turn of fate.
2: Right, um, yeah Yeah. and he is certainly receiving more attention I think especially for those who are concerned with religious freedom he's, he's become once more an object of fascination um, well, yeah. I'm sorry No, no, I was just going to get into you know all of the literature that's being written on Tertullian yeah. but that's probably <laughs> the weeds a bit much
1: yeah, I just read Stephen Smith's book, uh, "The Pagans in the City," that ah, yes. he draws and That a lot of, I interviewed him, and he's he uses Tertullian a lot, right? So, right. And that's the whole point of the book. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. A ap- ap- propo of, of of the modern era, and you write that um, you were discussing liberalism earlier, and you write that liberalism is not itself an adequate theoretical basis for religious freedom because it rests on either and sometimes both, and we discussed this earlier. Human consensus, which can vote away divine law's relevance, and/or coercion, which can enforce free exercise. And again, I found that very striking that that uh, it was really eerily, eerily prescient, prescient because you, you talk about it's it's not that liberalism is not a basis for an adequate basis because we are a very liberal society, and yet right now that that religious freedom really is is becoming a casualty of, again, of, of, public health, which, which I, which I am, am quite surprised that that the extent of the, almost the punitive, and it doesn't even, again, it doesn't seem to be related to science. It just seems like, well, it's an opportunity to, to, to make clear that these people are backward and, and yeah. not ignorant masses and so forth. Um, one thing that also was interesting in your book is that you make the point in the book that, the, the stakes are higher in the culture war classes. I thought that was interesting that you said that it used to focus on when, you know, 30 years ago, that would be questions of cr- the content of television programs or song lyrics or art exhibits mm-hmm. versus today, when it, again, it's the Supreme Court and congressional legislation. And I would add at, at the workplace level, it's not even, it's just at the workplace where, right. where, where where how you feel, what you can say in your workplace or yes. what you can, you know, the buttons and so forth. Yeah. and and what 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 you're what you're expected to to, yes. to acknowledge. yeah and, yeah, yeah. acknowledge and
2: or to hide yeah yeah
1: but yeah.
2: Um, i think it's it's certainly creeping into the uh, cat creeping into the academy it's here right that um self-censorship and then i mean even in some cases actual censorship i'm fortunate to be at a university that i think has done an admirable job of saying well we have free inquiry that is you know required for education and, and others have signed on to the University of Chicago standards, but certainly there's, it, it is true that it seems as we become more pluralized, uh, we have, you know, greater religious pluralism, perhaps ideological and, and also just, you know, socioeconomic or ethnic or um, racial, what, whatever level of pluralism seems to be increasing. Oddly, we seem more concerned and more anxious to impose a standard of uniformity. Um and so at once paying lip service to pluralism and yet at the same time saying, and now we must all obey these rules. Yes so, and we almost
1: say this. That's the key. Right. Yeah. Thing. We say yeah. Well, well, I wanted to ask in that, in that terms of if, if we, is there a danger in, in, in urging more natural law? Because isn't that, isn't itself in danger of cooptation? Because if you say, well, this is natural, then then what becomes yeah. natural is, and you say that natural law is a notoriously slippery concept. So yeah. you could say, well, people can argue, well, it's it's natural, that it same-sex like marriage is natural and, and so forth. And what becomes natural is is becoming increasingly, I mean, things that were thought unheard of 30 years ago or 40 years Our ago. Are defended or, as natural, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and, and I think I
2: raised in the Maimonides chapter, you know, that he sort of had this strict separation, as it were, between... Basically, the things of this earth, and then the you know the realms beyond that, and that Aristotle you know, went astray in attempting to explain the heavens because he's a philosopher and a scientist, and he does not need to concern himself with the heavens. And I raised the question, you know, would this separation still work if Maimonides were writing today? You know, in a post-Darwinian world, um, it would be more complicated. And I think you're quite right. If, if we want to make nature itself our standard, and I slip into that error quite a bit, um, but hopefully not in the book, but I think in, in discussions. Um, if we want to make nature itself the standard, we will run the risk of, again, you know, the Habesian world, right? That's what Hobbes did. He said, okay, first of all, our inquiry, the only things we can really know is that which comes from the senses. So let's jettison all this metaphysics. Secondly, let's look at what we can know from our senses. Okay, look at nature. We see People and animals, you know, killing each other, and that our primary motive—the thing that really everything reduces to—is the fear of violent death. And so, nature left by itself will end in the war of all against all. And so, we don't want that kind of natural law. <laughs> and that's certainly not. And and again, that it is a notoriously slippery slippery concept because Hobbes uses it, um, and the sort of early moderns will use it in in related ways as if nature itself is some sort of standard and it gives us a law. And I don't really mean that. Um, and, and I think that Aquinas didn't mean that. And I think the earlier uses of natural law just don't mean that. Rather, and again, I, I keep recurring to Sokolowski here, but the idea that the way that the world is has certain ends in it. It's not how do we all behave in nature, because we probably act contrary to our our longer term ends, we get afraid and things interfere with our pursuing our our true ends, our, our ends as humans, as good humans. Um, because when you discuss the nature of something, this is Sokolowski's point in his article, um, what is natural law? He, he says, okay, to discuss the nature of something is to discuss the nature of that as a good thing. You know, if you wanna talk about, well, what is a clock? You're not gonna define it by a broken clock. You're going to define it as a functioning clock, right? Mm-hmm. So, We do need to interrogate nature, but we need to interrogate its ends, the the ends of human beings and of institutions and of these things that we find occurring naturally. Not just how do people behave in nature, because um, a lot of things can get in the way of behaving well in nature, i.e. in behaving towards that which would um, realize our ends, if that makes sense.
1: Well, I was just going to say apropos of, of na- 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 the term na- nature itself is kind of hard to describe because um, the, the climate change people will say, well, we we believe in nature and think, well, in, in terms of, I mean, it's almost sort of this triumphalism after COVID-19 that, well, nature is kind of reclaiming the earth, that, that mm-hmm. as human society kind of winds down or, or hunkers down, I should say, I hope not winds down. I but, know. <laughs> but, but what, what's kind of what's kind of scary is that they make public statements of, well, the water is cleaner in Venice and the air is better now in in Bombay, in Bombay and in Mumbai and just think, well, yes, but that's at the expense of massive unemployment and human suffering mm-hmm. on a scale that we haven't seen in seven, seventy or eighty mm-hmm. years. Just, mm-hmm. just nature as if humans didn't exist. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. It's, it's isn't this grand and it, it's also it's also it's rather vindictive. Saying, see what we told we told you, and then the idea that that. It's almost the 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 science aspect where we have a we have fifteen year old or sixteen year old I suppose Greta Thunberg at this point telling us to listen to the scientists and yet she's she's urging children not to go to school. Mm-hmm. So I think okay, well that's the, so we're <laughs> supposed to who are going to be the scientists that <laughs> we're supposed to listen to? It. But it, and it's also I mean there's a sort of religious aspect to her. I mean it's it's like she's like this like this kind of modern Antigone, you know, scolding the the the, the powers and power right yeah yeah in fact
2: i i imagine that has probably been said i hadn't even thought of that um but i right i think that again nature if we want to define nature as the sort of you know there's that's why i i present natural law as a mediating law it's something that participates in both human law and divine law it can't be something that is a separate entity of itself in fact um this is, if I could read just a brief passage from Sokolowski's article, What is Natural Law? It's called, What is Natural Law? Human Purposes and Natural Ends. He says, we might be tempted to think of the natural law as a kind of codex, a set of imperatives that could be formulated in a purely theoretic, systematic exercise, identifiable and arguable apart from any particular moral tradition. Um, And I think that is the temptation for those who see nature as this thing that is just divorced or even opposed to humans, right? Humans are a part of nature. We need somehow to be able to exist together. And Sokolowski says, but if we think of natural law in this way, we could easily be led into skepticism. If the precepts of natural law are so lucid and rational, why is there so much disagreement and so much obscurity about them? The fact of moral controversy would in this viewpoint show that natural law cannot be a codex. So um, I, I raise that because, it's important to understand, I think, certainly in, in my argument, it's important to understand that natural law isn't a separate body of law. I'm not saying, um, okay, we have human law, which is largely positive law, and then we have divine law, which is revealed or is believed to be revealed, and these two are in conflict. So let's come up with another body of law, and it comes out of nature and sort of like speaks to us from, you know, the mountains or something. No, what rather... granting
1: personhood to rivers and... and-
2: right, right. That's right.
1: kind of a concept. Yeah.
2: To resolve a conflict, ideally you don't want to just add parties to the conflict. There needs yeah, to be something part, that can mediate it.
1: Absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. Now we're going to have a, an, another aggrieved party, which right. is... A, right. Early. Yeah. But but apropos of that, when you discuss religious freedom and and, and, and various parties, you discuss the idea when you're discussing, is it as a, the country of Qatar or Qatar? I'm oh, gonna...
2: yeah. But <laughs> speaking of things we can't pronounce... Um, it is, it, it's really whatever you want it to be. Uh, the problem is that it, it's actually three Arabic letters that don't exist in English. So it's in Arabic, it's Qatar, but people say Qatar, Qatar whichever you'd like. I usually say Qatar.
1: Yeah, I had a CIA professor, a retired, and he pronounced it gutter.
2: <laughs> yes. Well, uh, again, a little nuance of Arabic dialects, the Gulf dialect, it pronounces it as a G. So, I mean, it's really anything you want.
1: Well, I won't. I won't venture it again. But in that country that we were discussing, <laughs> yes. you, you, you have this interesting concept of not. You say not just religious freedom singular, but religious freedoms, mm-hmm. which is kind of an interesting uh, an idea that there. Right. And you also, talk about the local level that that religious freedom would be manifested, and you, and you also talk about yeah. the, the role of an American an American ambassador there that was really fascinating.
2: That was okay, oh, right? Yeah, yeah, um, Gugassian and he was a uh, I think Armenian born but raised in Egypt so he was and, and possibly born in Egypt um, so he he had insider understanding of Arab you know the Arab world certainly Egypt is quite different from Qatar but um, he was able to sort of use personal relationships to negotiate a quite quick turnaround on religious freedom first for Christ, for Christians um, it's still you know it's very much a work in progress. It's not, there isn't what the West would be satisfied with as, as religious freedom. And even when we lived there, um, there's what's called church city. You know, the churches, there are many of them now, are all within one compound kind of outside of the city. Mm. Um, so perhaps it's sending a message. I don't know. But in any case, I mean, we were grateful to have a church where we could go. Um, and, and it's, yeah, that is not the same standard that we would insist on in the West. But when you are working with the what is believed to be the, you know, it's the hobby tradition in the Gulf is is quite strong. So it's a very strict version of Sharia. Um, there will be different pictures of what religious freedom looks like. And I think my point there was to move away from these purely abstract understandings of universal human rights that says we must have these standards. Otherwise this is an errant state, etc. It's I, I think, we have to work in a back and forth with human law and divine law. Um, and, and it'll be, it'll happen incrementally and well, it might a, end up looking different in different places.
1: Yeah. I was going to say, it's such a fascinating contrast to what Erdogan is doing in Turkey, which is taking it from a, a highly secular state of Et- that, that Ataturk created to, um, taking over m- major landmarks. Right. right. <laughs> yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know, um, I don't want to speculate on. Well, Turkish politics certainly would be well beyond my my wheelhouse. But um, but I think natural law can serve as something of a um, a buffer against the overreach of. In a sense, Erdogan is overreaching with human law in the name of divine law. Or you could say that he's overreaching with divine law. But either way, natural law can kind of serve as a buffer. Well, no, we can't do that because it is in the nature of these institutions or or what have you to be open to the world or or, well beyond the Hagia Sophia question, uh, other moves that he's making, you could probably buffer using natural law, but of course it has to first be ensconced within the the public imagination there.
1: Hmm. Well, Karen, I've taken up a lot of your time. I'd like to ask you now the traditional final question on the New Books Network, and that is, what are you working on now? Oh boy, um, <laughs> I uh, I've been having a new baby and teaching a full load. And right? <laughs> yes,
2: attempting to stay awake. Um, <laughs> no, I'm not. Thank God, I'm not. I'm not teaching this semester, or I probably would have been fired by now. Um, <laughs> but we, I suppose listeners won't know that we have a, a five week old at home, as well as a four year old and two year old. So keeping my head afloat. Uh, two projects at the moment. I have a, a few that are sort of done um, using Averroes again. Actually, I was working on his commentary on Plato's Republic, which is is quite interesting, but that one's aside. So I'm working on one project on uh, liberalism and what it did to, it's related certainly to this book, what the social contract traditions in Hobbes, Rousseau, and Locke did to the notion of religious authority. Um, My thesis there is that in making the social contract the basis of society, it fundamentally altered the entire notion of what religion is. And that helps to explain some of the, the quandaries that we find ourselves in today. So that one is in the works right now. Another one is sort of set aside, but I think, I hope. That's an Anna,
1: article that you're working on now? That right. is
2: a book chapter Oh, chapter. Um, in, in a large edition on uh, the notion of the polis and political friendship. So one of my conclusions is that if we are to keep liberalism, which I submit is a good idea, Uh, we will need political friendship because we don't have the, what I'm calling a transcendent or a vertical axis of authority. We've lost an authority of anything higher than humans in, in jettisoning for for good reason. I think that the social contract, there was reason to say we cannot have state religions imposing religious authority um, for better or for worse. That's what happened. So when in order to political, have, I'm
1: political, sorry. When, I'm sorry. When you say political friendship, is that different from civic friendship, or is it?
2: It's no, I think not. At least not in how I'm conceiving it. It's a. It's an edited volume, so the other authors might have different versions. But um, my understanding is that right. We will. We will have to have civic friendship in sort of an Aristotelian sense, also Villian, But I'll get into that in the chapter. Aristotelian sense of, of friendship, if we are to still have the social contract function. Um, So that is sort of a history of liberalism, but also addressing our our current agonistic politics, I guess you could say. And then the other project is a bit more epistemological um, in nature, submitting that what we think of as religious knowledge is a product of certain medieval developments that, that are sort of not thought of today. I'm actually building on. Um, a work by Brad Gregory, The Unintended Reformation, which is a terrific book. Um, But he does some work early in the book that says, you know, these developments between essentially a a Thomist version of what we can know about the world versus a a version coming from uh, Duns Scotus made this magnificent difference in, in intellectual history, ended with the Reformation and that changed all these things. But I'm sort of sticking to the Scotus Aquinas difference Um, And then expanding it to just religious knowledge.
1: I'm I'm sorry, SCOTUS being, I'm not familiar with. Oh
2: yeah. That's uh, the medieval. Let's see. Let me get his dates down. That's helpful. Yeah. It's, I know I'll, I've I've set this aside (laughs) now. So of course I'm died in 1291. Right. So um, his idea, this is the Gregory's telling of it is that, you know, we, we must be able to know something of God by reason alone. And, Aquinas says, no, we only know things analogically. Um, We we can only claim to know things in a sort of in in scare quotes, right? Everything we know about God is known analogically. And Scotus says, no, we can know uh, his existence by by reason alone. So I'm developing what that means for religious knowledge, um, what that difference means for what we claim in, in knowing things in a sense of religious knowledge. The idea in modernity is that, you know, we're claiming something that is by revelation. It is outside of other forms of knowledge. My claim is moving, or at least my my argument is moving in the direction of actually religious knowledge um, participates in just a much broader metaphysical understanding of knowledge that is not purely religious, that actually um, engages engages the world in a much more robust sense than sort of there's the religious realm and the scientific realm this is a realm that can participate in both so sorry that was a bit convoluted but i haven't worked on that chapter in a few months now but you can see it's it's actually again picking up the same the same question you know what can we work with when we have both human knowledge and divine knowledge um, so that they are not always in tension with each other or, or fighting against each other.
1: Well, that's a very hopeful note on which to end and optimistic about that we can, as, as Rodney King famously said, can't we all just get along? Yes. <laughs>
2: well, we can hope to at least, <laughs> we can at least hope to get along. <laughs> that's right.
1: Well, and with that, I will just thank the scholar we've been talking to today, Karen Taliaferro, author of the book, The Possibility of Religious Freedom, Early Natural Law on the Abrahamic Faith. And thank you, listeners. Thanks, everyone. Thank you, Karen. Bye-bye. Thank you, Hope, so much.